2: I'm Bryce Clem with an episode from the Lawfare Archives for December 26, 2021. I picked an episode from October 2015 in which a panel discusses the NSA's surveillance reforms post-Edward Snowden. The panel features Lawfare's Benjamin Wittes, former NSA director General Michael Hayden, Robin Simcox of the Henry Jackson Society, and Laura Donahue of Georgetown Law.
3: I'm Cody Poplin, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 17th, 2015. That was the voice of none other than Benjamin Wittes, Lawfare's co-founder and editor-in-chief. Last week, the Center for Strategic and International Studies hosted Ben, along with Laura Donahue of Georgetown Law, former NSA director Michael Hayden, and Robin Simcox of the Henry Jackson Society to discuss the future of surveillance reform in a post-Snowden world. What have we learned about NSA surveillance activities and their oversight mechanisms since June 2013? In what way should U.S. intelligence operations be informed by their potential impact on U.S. economic interests? And domestically, has the third-party doctrine outlived its applicability? Tom Carrico of CSIS moderated the panel. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode number 143, Surveillance Reform After Snowden.
4: National Security Program at CSIS and we've got really a a great conversation today about uh, intelligence reform uh, post the Snowden era and we're going to change the the lineup I think slightly from what's uh, from what's on the panel why don't we have General Hayden go first Uh, of course uh, former uh, director of CIA and NSA uh, as well as many other things Um, and then I think I'll have uh, Ben Wittes a uh, senior fellow of course in, of uh, governance studies at the Brookings Institution, editor-in-chief of my favorite blog, Lawfare. And Laura Donahue is a professor of law at Georgetown Law, director of the Center on National Security and Law, and the director uh, of the Center on Privacy and Technology. Are you director of anything else that's <laughs> left off? And finally, um, playing clean up, uh, Robin Simcox, who is a research fellow of the Henry uh, Jackson Society, and has a new report out on surveillance after Snowden. I think he's going to be joining us in DC, uh, uh, this side of the pond here soon. So,
5: why don't we start off, um,
4: General Hayden, with giving us uh, some initial thoughts?
5: Sure. Um, so, so let me offer perspective that might be a little bit different from my colleagues. We're, we're, we are quickly going to be jumping into specifics. But you know, should you do this? Should you not do that? Is this still warranted? Does this still meet the reasonable definition? reasonableness definition in the Fourth Amendment. You should have been in the green room. We'd already started the scrum about, about different issues. But let, let me enter the problem through a slightly different, uh, slightly different window. And that's not what we, des- what we decide is reasonable or unreasonable. What we decide is lawful, unlawful. What we decide is appropriate or inappropriate. But how we decide. And I, I, I think that actually is, is the, is the fundamental thing that, that, that is changing, okay? So when the 215 program is, is made public, that's the metadata issue, the, uh, the bulk data that's accessed occasionally by NSA, and, and, and so on. Uh, when, when, when that was made public, the, I think the government and, and the National Security Agency, to, to use a phrase probably more familiar to Robin, was on its back foot about the whole thing. Actually, it probably back in another part of its body, but it wasn't responding very well. Uh, to this. And it, and it was because they were taken off guard. And, and let me just articulate the case from the NSA's point of view and to describe for you what I, the issue of how we decide is, is I think, the core issue. Um, so, NSA comes out of the Church Pike era. And when I was actually directed by President Bush to begin the predecessor of the 215 program under his authority, I mean, I ac- actually said to the president, Mr. President, Uh, NSA, since the 1970s, has a permanent one-ball-two-strike count against it. We don't take any close pitches. And what I was referring to was coming out of Church Pike and the real and imagined abuses of, of that era and the era right in front of it, and then the structure that we set up, the process that we set up, in, in order to make these decisions—good, bad, reasonable, unreasonable, appropriate, inappropriate—and the process we set up was to take something that, frankly, had always been almost exclusively within the province of the executive, espionage,
2: right—and
5: spread it out over the other branches of government. And and you know, when we get to process questions later, we need we need to remember that we Americans have spread this out over other branches of government more than any other Western democracy. Our Congress and courts are more empowered to oversee American espionage than any other parliamentary or court system in the world. So the the grand compromise was that, although it largely remained within the power of the executive, you created two standing committees in Congress. You had a House Permanent Select Committee and a Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, and the law is pretty clear, fully and currently informed. Now, we'll probably talk about how hard that is, particularly from the congressional point of view, because this is a lot of stuff and none of it's simple. But the law is fully and currently informed. And then we created a court system, albeit a secret court, to oversee it. I was in, in Germany for the Immunion Security Conference. I mentioned the FISA court and, and someone from the darkness, this was a panel at 1030 at night. It was literally on, in the bar of the hotel, but it was on the schedule. And I said the FISA court and a, a, a German accented voice in English comes out of the darkness and, and, and says a very unusual court indeed. And I said, yes, indeed, it's unusual. Not because it's secret, but because it is. Other democracies do not put these kinds of questions under the judiciary. So now you've got the 215 program, authorized by not one but two presidents, and you know, following along closely since we all live in D.C., kind of different personalities, but both presidents had, had authorized the program. It had been legislated in Congress, and I know we can debate about the fine print, about what people did or didn't know, but it was in statute in in the Patriot Act, and then it was overseen by the federal court system. So NSA is chugging along with 215 saying, hey, I I got the Madisonian trifecta going on here. I've I've got the executive, I got the legislative, I got the court, how much better can this be? I have done it exactly the way you guys said we had to do it, coming out of the kerfuffle of the 1970s. And as it turned out, a lot of our countrymen didn't think that constituted consent of the governed. And here I'm not talking about a radical fringe or people with tinfoil on their head. An awful lot of of solid-thinking Americans, because of a shift in our political culture, describe what I just described to you not as consent of the governed, but perhaps consent of the governors. Put another way, you may have told them, but you didn't tell me. And an awful lot of, of, of really calmly thinking Americans raised the issue as to whether the grand compromise of the 1970s was the way they would choose to approve edgy espionage activities in the future. Now that, that is, I think, The fundamental question that we have in front of us, we can decide on metadata and and, and incidental collection and inadvertent collection. You know, those are important questions. But the critical one is, how do we decide these questions in a way that most Americans feel that the answer has genuine legitimacy? This is going to be hard, all right? Covert action by plebiscite is, is an impossibility. And so how do we preserve enough secrecy and espionage, which relies on secrecy, to be successful, and yet create enough openness and transparency that most Americans say, I'm comfortable with that and I'm happy that it's going on? That, to me, is, is the core question we have in front of us.
0: Thank you. Ben. Um, so thanks very much for having me. Um, I'd like to start... I, I, I want to suggest three what I think are core questions that any sort of next phase of uh, intelligence reform are gonna have to confront. The first is uh, duplicative of the one that General Hayden uh, just made, but I wanna frame it a little bit differently. The 1978 church pike compromise had a structural logic to it. And the structural logic was we cannot do the normal forms of democratic oversight with respect to ongoing intelligence activity because you then reveal the contents of the intelligence being collected as well as the modes of the acquisition. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna create these institutions within within the normal oversight institutions that operate different ways but conduct the same activities. So uh, General Hayden mentioned the FISA court is the one that reviews the legality of the immediate uh, acquisition uh, proposed, right? And it functions the way an Article III court, it is an Article III court, but it functions the way an Article III court normally functions in the context of a wiretap, only it does so without the subsequent disclosure uh, that takes place. Similarly, the intelligence committees in both houses are you know, proxies for the normal sort of oversight that a congressional committee would have, say the Armed Services Committee, would have over the military. Nobody ever thought these mechanisms were perfect. Um, but until relatively recently, they were regarded as adequate, and they were regarded with a certain degree of pride Um, to the extent that people even knew they existed. Um, So I want to frame the question that that General Hayden just posed as do we still believe in the 1978 compromise? Does that logic that you can do the same activities using subsets of institutions um, that can act with secrecy and with an understanding of the, you know, sometimes quite exigent intelligence community need for secrecy uh, and in a trusted environment, or do we not any longer believe in that? And do we, are we going to insist on a more populist vision of intelligence oversight? And if the latter, what does that look like? I think, so that's fundamental question number two, one. Fundamental question number two, there is a wonderful old Gary Larson far Side cartoon, some of you above a certain age will remember, <laughs> entitled How Birds See the World. And it is an aerial view of an urban landscape in which all of the people and dogs have targets over their heads. Um, <laughs> now, this could easily be renamed how the intelligence community sees (laughs) overseas non-U.S. persons, right? Um, There's a name in the intelligence community for non-U.S. persons overseas, and it's targets, uh, or potential targets. Now, when the Snowden revelations broke, the uh, intelligence community, and President Obama, and all quite reasonably, in my view, responded by saying, hey, look, we have these incredible protections for US persons. We have all of these judicial review mechanisms. We have congressional oversight. And it's all designed, look, we have these, US persons need not feel threatened by any of this. Uh, You know, unless you're engaged as an agent of a foreign power. And guess what? All of that was right, by the way. And guess what, it didn't matter if you happened to be German, that the U.S. has all these wonderful protections for U.S. persons, if you happened to be Brazilian, this was not especially reassuring. And the significance of this, to my mind, is immense, um, that the if you look at... Uh, presidential decision directive tw- uh, 28 the, uh, the the reform directive that Obama issued it acknowledged for the first time in the history of intelligence in the world that the non the non-national of the intelligence acquisition activity overseas has privacy interests that the intelligence community has to recognize in some sense now how much that how much PDD 28 really How much it affects anything is a complicated set of technical questions. But what's not a complicated set of technical questions is the following. Everybody agrees now to some degree that that that, that model where foreigners overseas are just the, the targets, right? Like how birds see the world. We're moving away from that to some degree. We're acknowledging, and this is of course what the European Court of Justice opinion this week was about, right? You have some, we seem to be acknowledging that there is some degree of privacy interest worldwide that our activity implicates that we acknowledge. Now, this is a very, very profound change. Uh, And the question is, to put it crudely, uh, are we serious about that? And I, I think there's a, This is going to be a huge undercurrent of the next phase of debate. And the reason, quite simply, is that uh, 95% of the world, which the intelligence community looks at and sees targets, and Facebook and Google look at and they see customers. Um, And industry does not look at those communities and say, ah, it's fine for there to be open season on the rest of the world as long as U.S. persons' privacy is protected. And so I think the second big question is, what obligations, if any, does U.S. intelligence owe to the privacy of everybody else in the world? And is, does that operate with no uh, consideration of reciprocity, which is to say what obligations does Chinese intelligence owe to U.S. Imp- US persons or uh, the FSB owe to uh, U.S. persons. Uh, finally, uh, when I raise this issue, people often look at me like I'm insane. Um, and I wanna start by saying I'm entirely serious. There's no component <laughs> of the following that is a joke. Um, we are gonna have to confront what happens as we all become more cyborg-like than we currently are, and what that means, what the cyborgization of the human species is going to mean for our view of metadata? Um, many of you are wearing uh, medical monitoring devices on your wrists. We call them, you know, uh, Jawbone or, or uh, you know, something that uh, occurs bio data about yourself, a Fitbit. Um, Some of you may have a pacemaker. um, That produces a lot of data that can be collected from outside. We think of data as limited by, produced by your phone, right? But data is not produced just by phones. It's produced by all kinds of electronic objects with which we uh, engage. Traditionally, we would describe that material as metadata. And we would describe its non-content information, right? It's just what your heart's doing. It's just your pulse, right? Uh, It's not what you've said to somebody else in a communication. And um, we would traditionally regard it under Smith v. Maryland as material that you voluntarily disclosed to a third party. Now, you may have voluntarily consented to have that pacemaker put in when you were in cardiac arrest, but you didn't have to, right? And it's being given to some... (coughs) company that uh, operates your pacemaker for you. Um, the more integrated we get with technology, the more data we are producing of a non-content variety, the more unsatisfying the division between metadata and content data is gonna seem. The more you are a cyborg, the less you are a pure biohuman. human the less less sense it makes to make a sharp division between metadata and content data. So I wanna suggest that question number three, and I will stop here, is as we become more integrated with technology, um, that is our human existence becomes more integrated with technology, if you accept as a working premise that the collection of a lot of metadata is not gonna proceed under normal warrant standards. What is the basic rule gonna be for the collection of stuff that isn't voice or email communications but can be very, very personal and isn't being collected from us? It's being collected from entities with which we choose to do business. So, uh, I'll stop there. Three, three kind of big picture questions with no attempts at answers to.
6: <laughs> okay, um, so actually, I'll pick up there because I agree with you about this about the change technologies. More of what we say and do is online and recorded and digitized. And because it's digi- digitized, it means that it can be accessed. It can be analyzed, it can be shared, it can be combined with other information uh, than ever before. So we live in a new world, and one in which networks have converged. So before, if we wanted to do foreign intelligence, we could put specific military systems, for instance, under surveillance. But it didn't affect the rest of us, so to speak. But now, with the internet, it does. And so technology has radically transformed this world. Where we go, what we do, who we are with when we do it, all of this information is now recorded, it can be accessed, and these networks have converged. Um, What we've seen in addition, that I think the Snowden uh, documents really showed, is that at the same time we've seen a lowered barrier to access to foreign intelligence information for the, for, for the United States government. Um, and these phenomena, I think, have really converged along with outmoded legal doctrines like third party data, reliance on geography, and the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, that these have all converged to bring us to the point in time when the Section 215 telephony metadata program and the 702 FAA collection program and certain discussions about Executive Order 12333 have really pushed this into the public discussion. Um, So I've written quite a bit about the legality and constitutionality of those programs. What I'd like to focus on today is what we should do about it, because the problem really, I feel a bit like Plato's Allegory of the Cave, that we've been looking at the shadows on the wall, but there's this fire raging behind us, which is society is changing, technology is changing, and we need to rethink these issues, how we approach them, if we really do care about individual rights moving forward. Um, And so what I'd like to suggest are three things uh, that we should think about moving forward from here as a way to actually address these problems that have now presented themselves. Um, The first is more robust oversight. Uh, The second is to distinguish more clearly between criminal law and national security. Those two fields have become intermingled at the cost, at the great cost of individual rights uh, in the United States. Uh, And third is to look at our existing legal doctrine and to alter it, both the statutory and our constitutional interpretation to take account of a digital world. So first, on more robust oversight. uh, When everybody, after the Snowden documents came out, people started talking about, oh, we need more oversight. And I was reminded of a paper, uh, still the greatest academic titled paper. I know that's a low bar, um, but there was a paper that Scott Sagan, who's a professor of political science at Stanford, wrote in 2004 when he looked at the Challenger space shuttle disaster and he looked at nuclear, um, uh, nuclear reactors in, uh, uh, in India and ways in which the more protections you build into systems, the less safe they become because a form of social shirking Occurs. You can't say that too many times too fast, right? Um, And what happens is the more protections you build in, the less responsibility people take to kind of call people on the problem. And he called the paper, The Problem of the Redundancy Problem. (laughs) <laughs> when, which I always thought was great. So so when, so when people said, we need more oversight, I thought, oh, gosh, that is not what we need. You know, we have the um, IG of the, of the Department of Justice and the agency have to review compliance under targeting and minimization and re- report them every year. Twice a year, the Attorney General and the Director of National Intelligence have to report on 702 compliance to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, to the Senate Intelligence Committee, to the House uh, Intelligence Committee, to both of the Judiciary Committees, um, to... Uh, <laughs> To everybody, the Attorney General and I have to actually provide the IG reports to the congressional committees every six months. The Attorney General has to inform the congressional committees of FA of the uh, FISA Amendments Act 702 certifications, etc. There is a lot of reporting going on. Okay, so what do I mean by more robust oversight? More robust oversight. Well, first, uh, we need to have economics be considered fairly deep within the intelligence structure you know the fact that we've lost 140 billion in cloud computing Uh, because of what was going on at the NSA, we don't have any statutory members on the NSC who have economic interests. Now, the president can put people on the NSC with economic interests, with the economy's interests, but we need to have a more robust understanding of economic security as part of national security, and at a programmatic level, start having somebody there looking at what's the cost to the U.S. economy of some of the intelligence initiatives that we have underway. Uh, We need to have a more robust uh, appointment process for the foreign intelligence surveillance court the fact also that only three of 17,000 applications to the court had ever been rejected that's a little bit concerning Um, but even more concerning is the fact that for three years the NSA was querying a database without reasonable articulable suspicion as the court had required it to do so and in response when the court found out that it had been doing this illegally and unconstitutionally they let them keep the information and continue collection. So there needs to be some sort of teeth in the measure, that if the NSA or others act badly, there is a cost for that. That's a more robust oversight mechanism. The constitutional advocates of the USA Freedom Act are proposing uh, for the court. I think this may also help. The court was not designed in 1978 to do anything else but grant warrants. Just it was a simple, almost administrative procedure. But over time, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court has started to write decisions, to interpret statutory language, to make new constitutional findings. So there's now, according to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of Review, a special needs exception for foreign intelligence. No other court in the United States has found a special needs exception for Fourth Amendment purposes for a warrant. Um, This type of finding by a secret court, I think, should be challengeable by a constitutional advocate and should be appealable to the Supreme Court. There should be more transparency for these rulings. So there are a number of things that you can do to the existing structures without just throwing them out that I think would provide more robust oversight. On the second category, the criminal law foreign intelligence distinction. Uh, We have historically tried to keep these separate. So there was something called the primary purpose test, which was really developed in a case called Truong, uh, which dealt with a Vietnamese um, national and a US citizen. In that case, the court said, look, as long as your primary purpose is foreign intelligence, you can use these looser standards to obtain information under the foreign intelligence, what became the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, Truon predated it, but then you have the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. This was just followed um, by the Department of Justice and by courts uh, that it was understood that if you're going to have weaker standards, then you have to use it for the purpose that you're collecting it for. Now that changed when the <coughs> wall came down with the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Uh, this was post 9-11. When the wall came down, this was the set of understandings that said, look, you cannot use FISA to get around the criminal law requirements. Now, however, underneath the law and underneath the the court's decisions, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of Review, you can use FISA when your primary purpose is criminal in nature, is criminal in nature. So you can use the looser restrictions, the looser standards of FISA to go after ordinary criminal activity. And what we've seen is a plummeting in ordinary Title III applications and an exponential increase in FISA applications during that time. Uh, We also see that the FBI, for instance, queries the Section 702 database frequently for totally unrelated criminal activity. We've seen leaks talking about parallel construction, where information obtained from 702 or from overseas collection is then funneled to the DEA or to, to law enforcement agencies telling them, you have to reconstruct the evidentiary trail so nobody knows that this information came from intelligence. This is deeply problematic for Fourth Amendment purposes. And it's deeply problematic because the Fourth Amendment was introduced to prevent general warrants. A general warrant gives the government the ability to collect information and to use it to look for potential evidence of illegal activity without prior suspicion or prior wrongdoing and without particularization. So by using our intelligence gathering authorities for ordinary crime, we are going against the very reason why we adopted as a country the Fourth Amendment. And so I think a reseparation of those two spheres is absolutely essential. Uh, the final area is, um, is how we take account of this digital world um, that Ben was discussing earlier. And I think there are a number of ways to do this. First and foremost is the end of third party uh, data. Um, The idea that in our legal doctrine, if you give your information to a third party, you no longer have a privacy interest in it, fails to recognize the world in which we now live. Whether it's the internet of things, whether it's how we go about our daily correspondence, whether it's the fact that when I get in my car and drive down the street, where I go and who I'm with when I do so is all recorded and accessible. That is all private information. We have new algorithms that the kind of metadata that can be collected and analyzed is on a scale that was just didn't exist in the 1970s when this doctrine came into being. So it's time for the shadow majority on the Supreme Court, which in U.S. v. Jones we see that there is one, it's time for them to step forward and get rid of third-party doctrine. Um, I would, along with that, suggest a use restriction on the Fourth Amendment. Uh, I think it's time to recognize that the Fourth Amendment does have room for this so that if we collect information for foreign intelligence purposes, you cannot then turn around and use it to scan for public health or to scan for criminal purposes, or to scan for myriad other purposes that the government might have. That there is a use restriction that stems from the privacy interests involved. Um, And along with this, our reliance on geography. Uh, As a statutory matter, we've relied on things being inside the United States, being given a higher level of protection. Things outside the United States are given a lower level. But in this day and age, if I were to email another panelist, it might go through Paris. Right? It might go overseas, and the fact that it does so, I have no control over whether it does that or not, and even my service provider doesn't, because the internet follows the most efficient route. And so we have to come up with new ways to actually construct more, ro- more robust privacy protections uh, if we value this moving forward. Uh,
7: thank you. Well, um, thank you, uh, Tom, for inviting me. It's, it's great to be here, great to be um, Back in DC, as as Tom mentions, I will be moving here soon. So I'm going to make sure that my comments aren't so controversial that I lose <laughs> loads of friends before I even arrive in the country. Um, also, obviously, great to be here speaking as one of the as one of the targets Ben mentioned, the one <laughs> the non-US targets. Um, Only
0: when you're overseas.
7: Only anyway, when, <laughs> yeah. Um, the uh, the Snowden, obviously, the affair is one. Of the U.S., but I think certainly fair to say the contagion spread. Um, it's spread in a different way, and I hope you'll indulge. I'm, I'm going I'm to just discuss from a UK perspective um, the ways in which the, the Snowden revelations have had a, a direct impact on on policy and potential reform in this area. Um, the first thing I want to I, I, I want to bring up, probably important to know, is that. In all the discussion around metadata in the US, there's actually a, there's been a, a conversation going on in the UK for a, a few years preceding that regarding communications data, which is broadly analogous to metadata, though not exactly the same. But it's essentially the communications data is the the context of the conversation, the who, where, when, and how, but not the content. Um, and rather than a uh, rather than there being too much of this data being gathered, actually the government has had a fear, and has had a fear for a few years now, that the access to it is actually insufficient. That because of the way um, we change, that we're changing the ways we communicate, the ways we're billed by the communication service providers we use, for example, um, whereas uh, your, your telephone company had to know who you were calling, when, for how long, before in order to, to bill you, now we're paying... Directly, uh, you know, it's a, a prepaid plan. Um, there's not the need to generate that communications data that there was before. So at the end result of that, the company's not needing to generate the data. which means that intelligence agencies and the police are finding it increasingly hard to access it if they need to um, reconstruct networks of interest. And this, is, and this isn't just terrorist networks, it's been one of the things I think is especially interesting watching this the Snowden debate play out in the US from afar, is that there are, obviously there is, for understandable reasons, a, a good deal of focus on, on terrorism related issues. In the UK context, that's there, but there's also, when we, we talk about communications data, it's really important um, in identifying for example, suicide risks, or threatening callers, or child exploitation cases. There's all these, all these areas where communications data has been really important um, outside the terrorism aspect, and, and the fear is, from the state's point of view, that they're losing access to this data. The other thing that's been, and I think this is, this is something that's obviously been shared with the U.S. as well, is this divide that seems to have formed between the tech companies on one side and the state on the other. Um, uh, uh, during the research for my, um, for, for my report on this issue, um, a very senior British security official told me that the, the biggest impact of the Snowden actions, of all the, all the things that were revealed, were that the technology companies were now disengaging from the security apparatus. There was a lot of concern about this and, the, and, the, and fixing this, this um, relationship. I'll give two specific ways um, in which this has manifested itself and one which has a very uh, a very specific non-US component. So on encryption, for example, um, the uh, ubiquitous encryption, Apple, Google, Facebook, whoever it may be, WhatsApp, providing the encryption rather than the user having to uh, encrypt the data themselves. There's a very active debate going on at the moment and I, I've seen bits and pieces of it in the States as well, regarding the state having backdoor access to these communications. Um, there's a lot of pushback, I think, from, from the tech industry. There is obviously the fear that if you provide access for one, that means you're providing access for Russia, China, any other adversary, potential, potential um, cyber criminals. And so there's this, there's this debate going on where the government want the tech companies to fix this fundamental problem of not being able to access content data because of encryption and tech companies at the moment not being able to come up with a, um, a solution to it. And, and I've, I've seen there's been some debate on, on that and, and General Hayden interjected on it as well um, earlier this week, I think it was. There's also a specific um, problem when it comes to accessing data that outside the U.S. that I would, I would encourage you Encourage you to consider most of the companies that the UK is, for example, asking for data from. Let's say they want to get access to content of a, uh, a Facebook conversation or, or some other form of encrypted conversation using a US company. What you've seen happen increase a lot post Snowden is that the if a if a if a if a request is refused for whatever reason. There's been a, a significant, well, let me put it like this. First of all, that there's, been a, there's been an argument coming from tech companies that actually they're not communication service providers and so they shouldn't be bound by law in the same way that other communication service providers are. They've been arguing that they're actually software platforms so they're not obliged to hand over this data. Then the argument goes, well, even if we are a communication service provider, we're based in the U.S., So we're bound by US law, nothing to do with the UK. And so if we were to pass this on, it would contravene the Y-type act and and actually we'd be acting illegally. So the the UK government and and the security agencies, very, very upset by this, very exercised by the whole thing, um, are saying, well, you're, you're... your service is being offered in the UK. We wouldn't accept this from any other industry. The pharmaceutical services, financial services, don't get to pick and choose which parts of UK law that they adhere to. And so again, you have this constant friction that's taking place between, I guess, the you know Silicon Valley and the British security establishment. And and I guess you won't be shocked to learn there's not a huge amount of crossover in the views between Silicon Valley. And, uh, and MI5, 6, and GCHQ. There's been a, um, a legislative approach to try and fix some of these issues. Uh, April 2014, there was a ruling from the European Court of Justice that data retention in the way it was currently being practiced um, was a fundamental contravention of people's privacy. This was, again, something which made the UK government very, very nervous. It's another clear post-Snowden uh, knock-on effect, and so they passed emergency legislation last summer, quite controversial legislation in many ways, um, called the Data Retention and Investigatory Powers Act, Dripper. Um, and what this bill did was achieve several things. It it defined what a communication service provider actually was, so it tried to get around the problem of of various tech companies saying they weren't bound by the same laws as others. Um, it made clear that even those um, communication service providers which hold data abroad and are based abroad are subject to UK law if a warrant is served, and it also required them to retain the communications data for up to twelve months. despite the the you know there's been there's a level of pushback to this, but there's still more that the government wants and feels it needs to do legislatively. Um, there's still no legislation requiring the creation of communications data which, again, I would stress is important for all these things related to terrorism, security, child exploitation cases, criminal networks. It really is a fundamental part of our of our, um, of our crime fighting and, and security apparatus. Um, so there's still vast concerns about the access to communications data, and there's certain things like internet browsing, for example, still not being able to be accessed legislatively. So... If you're minded to watch these things, there's going to be a great deal more debate in the UK, I think, over the coming months about what the government can actually introduce to prevent this. Another big impact of of Snowden um, is on the uh, questions on whether the law that governs all the UK's interception capabilities is fit for purpose. So the, the law, the, uh, the Regulation and Investigatory Powers Act of 2000, which uh, the statutory framework which governs all the UK's interception work, widely seen as convoluted, overly complex, you often hear, hear it cited that as social media didn't exist in 2000 when the act was, was enacted, that it must be inherently incapable of dealing with modern communication interception issues. I think that's that's somewhat of a red herring. Um, ripper is is relatively old legislation, but it was also drafted to be technologically neutral um, so it's, it's more about oversight as opposed to whether it covers the latest app or not. but there has been um, a couple of really key reviews into this legislation uh, by the Intelligence and Security Committee of Parliament and uh, the independent reviewer. Of terrorism legislation in the UK, they've both been tasked to look at this, and both have recommended that there needs to be root and branch reform of the entire underpinning of the justification that the state uses to intercept communications. That's a really big consequence of what Snowden has done in, in getting that um, getting that on the table. Um, finally, uh, the oversight question, which we've uh, as as heard, we've heard come up in the. US context. One of the big debates in the UK is about the extent to which there has to be judicial oversight over requests for access to not just content, but communications data as well. And there's a real difference in, I mean at the moment in the UK we don't have judicial oversight in the same way. And I think that's one of the things as I was, I I looked into when I was studying the, the oversight the NSA had and I compared it to comparable Western democracies, be it France, Canada, Australia, Britain, um, my sense is that actually the, the oversight in the US is is really strong compared to some of the other issues that, you know, some of the the ways that um, interception regimes are, are overseen in, in Europe and, and in the West. But So the UK has no FISA court equivalent, for example. There's quasi-judicial oversight provided by various um, commissioners who've had high judicial standing and who um, report directly to the Prime Minister, but they don't have any enforcement powers and they don't have a direct impact on setting policies. It's basically like like an accountant looking at a tax return. He can see whether the tax return's right or not, but he has no impact to set tax policy. So that's led to a lot of criticisms in the UK over the the fact that warrants are issued by a Secretary of State, a politician, as opposed to a judge. Again, I, I think this problem. I recognise the debate around it. I think it can be overstated. There's certainly a problem in the UK with having uh, judges and magistrates trained to a sufficient quality to understand RIPA and the interception <coughs> framework. Um, and, and I don't. And uh, you know, a poor, poorly qualified judge looking at this issue, I don't think is is any more. Uh, valid than a well-trained secretary of state. Ministers also should be remembered are accountable to voters and accountable to parliament in a way that judges are not. Can apply the diplomatic and political context. An application may be legally sound and therefore theoretically should be approved but it may not be wise politically and not in the public interest. Also it's worth remembering that the the U.S. and the U.K. systems are very, very different. There's not really a direct comparison can be to be made. GCHQ, that our NSA equivalent, operates directly under an elected foreign secretary. The NSA is obviously within the Secretary of Defense's remit, but there's also answerable to the DNI. So there's not really the, the, two, the two systems aren't always um, perfectly analogous. There's a lot of other things you could, I could go into on this. I, I, would, I would just finish with the. <clears throat> The comments that, in terms of the public reaction uh, to, to the Snowden leaks, um, I think the UK's generally been more relaxed about what's happened, uh, the public response than the US. Part of this is cultural. When we uh, hear spying, I don't think we necessarily think 1984, we probably think more of James Bond. This is one of the few great British institutions left. Don't take James Bond away from us as well. Um, so, so you have even though Snowden doesn't poll especially badly the security services do still poll very well when, when, uh, when such polls that take place um, so e- but even with this taking place there's, and the fact that the, the, kind of the, the lobby I suppose calling for reform is, is small but vocal, the Snowden contagion has, has definitely spread to the UK, the fact that we're talking of um, ripping up Ripper or <coughs> Uh, changing the way our oversight works is a sign that no matter the culture in the UK, no matter how uh, what we view the role of state surveillance um, these issues uh, were unavoidably shaping the current UK discourse I'll leave that.
4: Good, well thank you, I've got a lot of questions uh, I'd like to, to first of all uh, pit the panelists against themselves I, I think the first question I wanted to, to use to do that uh, really comes from something that General Hayden, you left off, uh, led off with, uh, you, you began really by situating this back with the the interbranch compromises and the inter-branch arrangements. Mm-hmm. And I think, I can't remember, it was you or Ben who formulated the question, do we still believe in that basic compromise? Another way of formulating it, and, this, and the way I think it's glorious is, uh, is that arrangement adequate? And... and so, so I think the Federalist Papers called the the separation of powers in the particular way in which the inventions of prudence. Uh, this isn't something that was written down in John Locke, nor, nor indeed is the the various ways in which uh, statutorily we have we've uh, adapted that to these particular circumstances. So the question, first of all, uh, do we still believe in those basic compromises, or is something substantially more needed? Uh, in other words, the basic separation of powers
5: question for the United States. Sure. Very, very briefly, I do. Uh, as Robin points out, and I think Ben suggested, we, by international standards, we have a very invasive system of oversight from both our, our Congress and, and, and from court. Uh, the issue I was trying to raise is that our political culture has shifted underneath that. And our political culture is now so committed to, to transparency that it's calling into question the adequacy of the general population. I, 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 my personal view, it is indeed adequate. It, it does balance correctly American security and, and American privacy and liberty. But that almost doesn't matter. If, if, the, if the broad social contract out there finds that no longer satisfying, then we've got to figure out another way of doing it. Uh, what I think I owe to that, or more accurately, my old community owes to that, is a higher degree of transparency about what it is we do to the broader American public. The shorthand version of that I had was talk to the public when the press isn't accusing you of something. (laughs) Get out there in front of the story so people have a, 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 you know, I use the word transparency, and it's probably not good. I did this at Aspen a year or so ago on a panel, and Mike Leiter, former head of the National Counterterrorism Center, said, "I, I agree with everything Mike said. But it, it, that's not the right word. It's, it's translucent, not, not transparent. Transparent b- reveals too many operational details. Translucent allows the general public to see the broad shapes and movements that are going on within the espionage community. Reviewed in detail by the still extant uh, oversight bodies. That's probably where we need to be. Now let me add just one additional note from somebody with my background. That will shave points off of operational effectiveness. That is an inevitability. That will happen. But I'm telling you, done well, I think that's a a thoroughly acceptable choice as long as we all recognize what it is we're doing. All right? We are are marginally reducing capacity and capability, and in return, building up, I would hope, not marginally, public confidence in, in what we're doing. The alternative to that. if I'm right about the political culture, is we stop doing it. And that would be destructive, not just of American security, but of American liberty, because frightened, endangered people don't make good Democrats.
7: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care.
1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Other comments on that? Yeah. so, So
4: this,
6: you know, this isn't a new question, right? The founders faced this. This was James Otis's oration in Paxton's case, one of the most famous orations in U.S. history. And John Adams, our second president, who was there at the time, said then and there the child liberty was born. what was it Otis was saying? He was saying no general warrants. In that case, it was a writ of assistance as exercised by the crown against the colonies. And the idea was that this was tyrannical power. And in that case, Otis said, look, this is the worst kind of power you could give the government. This was the experience of Charles I. This was the experience of the Glorious Revolution, and this was George III. He was using a general warrant to collect information and to look for evidence of criminal behavior. So in, in the Federalist Papers, Hamilton and Madison and John Jay all said we need to separate the powers. And in Federalist 51, Madison said, ambition must be made to counter ambition, so that you have to align the interests of the man with the office. So we have to offset uh, the the Congress against uh, the executive branch, against the judiciary. But in Federalist 51, he goes on to say, experience has taught mankind the need of auxiliary precautions, and auxiliary precautions were in the form of separating powers and giving overlapping authority, and foreign affairs is one of those overlapping authorities. Both the President and Congress have foreign affairs authorities in the Constitution, and if Congress wanted to introduce statutes regulating more of Executive Order 12333, it could introduce statutes addressing these new technologies. So we mustn't forget the Federalist Papers and these overlapping authorities and the auxiliary precautions, uh, where we do have... Have authority to push back on what the executive branch is doing of course the final auxiliary precaution is the bill of rights where the fourth amendment does very clearly lay out that the right to of the individual against the collection of information with the intent of just looking for evidence of criminality we have a right to protect it to be protected against that because that is the definition of tyranny as the founding generation understood it
0: so I, I disagree almost entirely with what Laura just said, um, but I actually want. You're against I, the Bill of Rights. But I wanna, <laughs> I, I'm against the Bill of Rights. I'm really against the Fourth Amendment, and and, and, and Otis and Madison can <laughs> can go suck eggs for all I care. Um, um, but I'm uh, actually not going to engage on that point because I I want to focus on on the adequacy question that Tom posed, and specifically. I wanna suggest that you have to measure adequacy against the alternative. And one of the things that's so troubling (coughs) in this conversation, not this conversation, but the larger conversation that we've had about the adequacy of the oversight mechanisms, is that really there's not a lot of proposal for what a, a different, more populist vision of oversight would look like. And so, I mean, I'm actually willing to entertain the idea that the 1978 compromise is not adequate for our contemporary age but it seems to me that someone who's advancing that proposition and that proposition is pervasively advanced by among other things the press right which constantly you know talks about the uh, FISA court as a sort of rubber stamp institution and the the implication that congressional oversight is meaningless and trivial. um, I'm actually willing to entertain the idea that these are utterly inadequate uh, mechanisms, but it seems to me that somebody who wants to move beyond them has to propose what the oversight mechanisms that would replace them would look like. And I've actually, you know, I'm not the most crazily well-read person in in this area, but I'm not the least either. I've never seen a significant proposal for what intelligence oversight in detail, like what what is the version of the 1978 compromise that should be the 2015 compromise? And I, I think... You know, Laura just did, in her opening remarks, a little bit of the hard work of sketching that out. But, you know, there's actually remarkably little good work on this out there. That, you know, imagine you said, okay, the intelligence committees are garbage, these, these inspectors general are silly, uh, they're, uh, and the FISA court are just a bunch of, you know, uh, intelligence officials in robes. Um, let's build it from scratch. What's the it? What does it look like? And so I I will answer the adequacy question by saying, uh, look, I've engaged with the various institutions in question enough that I have a lot of confidence in them and enough that a reasonable person who doesn't share my political predispositions might reasonably say that I'm... uh, A you know captive uh, you know apologist for them, Um, you know they seem adequate to me, Um, but I'm perfectly willing to entertain the idea that we can do better than this structurally. I want to see. I want to understand what that looks like. I want to. I want to compare the existing thing not to some hypothetical. Uh, non-existent, non-articulated set of ideas, but to a concrete set of proposals about what intelligence oversight looks like. I've Never seen it.
7: Yeah, I'd, I'd just quickly come back on something um, General Hayden said, where we're talking about transparency. You know, I think there's a recognition that more could have been done by these agencies at an earlier time. I mean, if I think of GCHQ, it wasn't so long ago that... Uh, they even denied they existed, you know. So there's, without doubt, there's been there's a recognition that some of the, there has to be an opening up to an extent of some of the work these kind of agencies do. But I think there's a trade off on that, and a, an obligation for the rest of us, which is that the end result of all these debates, all these calls um, for for the agencies to open up, it may not be more unalloyed transparency. And tra- and transparency in this area may not be an unalloyed good. There is going to be and and, and this, you know <coughs> getting out ahead of the story. The intelligence agencies explain their work. I'm, I'm I get it. I understand it, and I think it, it needs to be done. But I think we as uh, I mean speaking as somebody not in any way part of the intelligence community, obviously, I think we as a, have to accept as a trade off. There are going to be very core things, and that. that that core might actually be pretty big that these agencies are going to defend and they're going to defend to the hilt. And so that seems to me to be one of the things that we should bear in mind uh, as as we call for more transparency.
4: You know, uh, Federalist 23 said that the the powers for national security have to be unlimited in character. And then Federalist 51 gets to how they divide up that authority uh, among the branches. Um, Let me shift a little bit to... uh, What, in your view, have been the secondary and tertiary effects, really, of of Snowden uh, and of of sort of all the the hullabaloo uh, of the the last several years uh, about this stuff? Um, Not in terms of counterterrorism, but in terms of how it's affected, uh, in your view, our ability and will, will affect our ability in future years in relation to, you might say, the growing great power conflict with China and Russia? Laura raised earlier kind of the economic security component, and perhaps you can touch on kind of the interest of NSA to to put walls around corporate America, perhaps. But I also want to talk about the uh, the degree to which in articulating, in going out and talking about the need to monitor various electrons, how much do you think that the conversation has been so diverted uh, or pushed specifically the, the CT area that these other things have been Neglected
5: in some way yeah. okay I'll start um, I do think the government's response to the accusations have been far too counterterrorism focused All right? Um you know it's, it's almost instinctive to, to, to pop up with with a CT story in defense of anything this is about and, and and to be fair 215 is limited only to counterterrorism purposes but that's not been the only accusation out there 702 which is the email uh, program is, is broad foreign intelligence, and so, so you're right. Uh, this, this has a, a great impact on, on the nation's ability to collect legitimate foreign intelligence. So to rattle off uh, how, how, we, how have we been hurt? Number one, operationally, unarguably, don't believe stories coming out of Moscow that and they have shown no evidence of how this has actually led to yada yada yada. Uh, you know, we are not going to give you the evidence of who we're not covering anymore. All right? we're, not, we're not putting that out there, um, but, it, but it has been significant. Second, it has to do with our international relations. And here it's more subtle, not the obvious. It isn't whose cell phone in Berlin we may or may not have been listening to. I, I understand that there, there, there is an unsettling quotient to that reality. But the more, more long-lasting impact on being able to provide common defense and common security is the inability of foreign intelligence services to believe anything they tell the Americans will ever remain secret. Why would you enter into a discreet relationship with American intelligence services, given our history, in terms of the inability to keep such discreet relationships secret? And, and the third great impact has been on American industry, who have been collateral damage in all of this, uh, for doing nothing more than German industry does for BND, or French industry does for DGSE or DST, or Italian industry does for SISMI. It's just the fact that Snowden was an American because of the special relationship with four other English-speaking democracies. He's dumped those countries' secrets out there. And American industry has been very unfairly punished by that. And that has a security quotient in terms of the long-term health of American industry. Not any kind of gray or dark relationship they may may not have had. It has a security impact when American industry is weakened. Then one final one final thing. Even the former Attorney General says, you know, snowden has got us to a different place and he's prompted a necessary debate. Um, maybe. He has badly misshaped that debate by the way the information has been put out there by his accomplices. All right, it, it is very hard to explain what it is we are doing because everyone now thinks NSA is collecting everything on everybody all the time. And so the, the so this, this truly necessary debate has to be done by, by folks who share a common database. And it is hard to construct that common database now because of the misperceptions created by the way these stories have been rolled out.
0: Ben, you chimed in? Yeah, I, um, I think that there's another huge effect that's not about German intelligence or, or French intelligence It's about Russian and Chinese intelligence, and we have managed to create the worldwide perception that the principal threat to the liberty and privacy of people all over the world is US intelligence. This is a collective delusion um, at a time when the Chinese are stealing blind um, IP from all over the world, Um, at a time when uh, nobody can tell you what the rules are under which the Russians uh, take very large quantities of stuff in terms of people's comms, and sometimes release it, by the way. Um, No one can tell you what the rules under which they operate are, because there are none, Um, in which, um, you know, the... uh, the the sense of threat that people have to the integrity of their communications is grotesquely warped. And um, you have people most afraid of the entities that operate with the most constraints under the real functioning rule of law. And that is a, a, a real perversity. And you see it in the European Court of Justice opinion this week. Which didn't say, you know, you can't uh, the safe harbor, you know, a, a, agreement with any other country in the world is dead. It said you can't, you know, have a safe harbor agreement with the United States because of NSA, and that is, I think, a I don't know if it's a secondary or tertiary or, but it, it is a it is a hugely peculiar set of developments that has implications entirely outside the realm of national security. It has implications in the realm of routine data transfers between countries that are doing business with one another. Um, And so I I think the reverberations continue. They continue to be as peculiar and perverse as they were almost from the beginning. And frankly, I think the the, uh, journalists who broke these stories bear a lot of responsibility for it in terms of the way they characterized U.S. activities relative to the countries uh, that are our adversaries in a lot of the intelligence uh, in activity that we engage in, and frankly, with in, in comparison to the activities of a lot of our allies in the intelligence activities in which they engage in.
4: Well, the I, effects you just described are, sound like the effects of an information campaign. Uh,
0: look, I'm not, I don't talk about people's motives. I mean, I, I, people talk about mine. I don't talk about <laughs> theirs. Um, I, I'm describing a set of effects. And, you know, a reasonable reader of any major news outlet in this or any other country in the world would have the impression that the NSA is an entity that menaces them. And with a very small number of exceptions, that just isn't true. And they wouldn't have the impression that the FSB or the People's Liberation Army, except to the extent that they have intellectual property to steal with <laughs> respect to the latter, is something that particularly menaces them. And that actually might not be true. And there, I, I think you know, you can look at a hundred news stories that are individually may or may not be accurate. But let's assume for the moment that there are no factual errors in the 100 news stories that cumulatively portray a a larger picture that's radically untrue. Um, And I think that's a challenge as you move forward in an intelligence reform debate. That's a challenge to the journalists in the room, frankly, to do your job better. Joe, hey, you two I, things, I, and then, Laura, I
5: just want to make a very brief comment. Ben in his first intervention talked about the United States now voluntarily extending protections that we had previously reserved only for u s. persons now in some way to foreign nationals. I just want to add, we are alone. No one else is okay. doing that.
6: Um, yeah, so 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 I, I disagree with some of the premises. Um, and and some of the conclusions. Uh, The reason American citizens are so worried about the government is because it is our government. And it is our government that was secretly interpreting the law to mean the exact opposite of what Congress intended when it passed the law. So in section 215 of the Patriot Act, when it said that the government had to have reasonable grounds to believe that the information being sought, the tangible goods, were relevant to an authorized investigation, and the government secretly interprets this to mean all telephony metadata is potentially relevant to authorized investigations generally. Therefore, we're just going to collect everything on all US citizens for years and use that information to look for evidence of criminal behavior. Uh, That is problematic, because the legislation actually didn't say that. So the problem isn't necessarily this note in leaks. The problem in that view is our government was secretly interpreting laws to mean the exact opposite of what Congress had intended by putting restrictions on what could be collected. And so what is the cost there? The cost is born in rule of law. The cost, and that is a profound cost for what was happening behind closed doors. That's a profound cost to the country. It's a profound cost, and it is of concern to citizens, because our government has access to very coercive tools. Our government has access to the ability to take away our liberty. It can take away our property. It can take away our livelihoods, and it can take our life. And if we don't have rule of law in a society where we know what is being done in our name at the broadest level, I do not mean programmatically every program underway, but if statute are being interpreted in a way that means the opposite and in a way that both courts and many members of the public have come to see as unconstitutional, then we need to have access to that kind of information. That is what democracy is about. And so I think one of the most profound costs here has been further lack of confidence uh, that what is being done secretly. And that's why the questions that General Hayden referred to earlier are now on the table. What will these structures look like? Because the compromise that we thought we had reached in 1978 did not allow for secret opinions carving out exceptions to the Fourth Amendment, did not allow for secret statutory interpretations, did not allow for a secret body of jurisprudence that would become binding on future judges and look to as precedent um, in the name of a democracy that didn't even know that that's how the law was being understood.
7: Yeah, a so so quickly, come on. Yeah, Real quick, oh, real quick on, on Russia. Um, they've used it in a very savvy way, I think. The uh, the, the Russian uh, government has a TV station runs out of London called Russia Today. Actually, the organization I work with is in the same office as them, believe it or not. <laughs> and they have plastered these pictures. Check all... your phones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the, they have plastered these posters all over London. You see them everywhere. You see them on the tube. It's one around the corner from my flat saying this is what happens when you don't get a second opinion. And they've gone to town on the Snowden stuff. they put it in their advertising all around London. Um, and, and it seemed to me that some of the things that were reported on, uh, on, on the NSA's activities on Russia, and, and Ben's website documented this terrifically well, were just outrageous. It was things like, well, the NSA worked with the Norwegian government or the Swedish government to try and get a better idea about Russian energy policy or Russian military policy. And that was tied in with all this debate around metadata and everything? I mean, if that isn't the job of an organization like the NSA, then what is?
5: Just to come back to the question of secret law, uh, just as a matter of fact in the literal meaning of that word, you you need to keep in mind that every member of the oversight committees had full knowledge as to exactly what NSA was doing and under what legal structure they were doing it. In fact, Senator Wyden has been accorded something of a, heroic status because of his opposition to what NSA was doing. And, and the reason uh, he was so frustrated was he was losing the committee vote 13 to 2. And so the structure set up in the 1970s to kind of in loco rest of Congresses, all right, approve uh, these kinds of secret things, that structure is the one that was used. So the committees were, were very witting. Beyond that, in both 2009 and 2011, Jim Clapper sent letters to the chairs of the two intelligence committees, intending them to be shared with all members of Congress, saying explicitly, now you know we got all the metadata all the time, domestically and to and from the United States. Now, those were top secret code word documents kept in the two skiffs of the Senate and the House Intelligence Committees, and I will accept, as a matter of fact, not many members went to look at them. But the fact of the matter is the DNI took the extra step beyond what was known by the the committee members to let the the entire Congress know the broad scope of the program.
0: Can I I just add one tiny little thing? If you wanted to make one reform to the congressional intelligence oversight process that would actually have a really big impact, it would be to make members sign a document acknowledging every briefing they get. Because one thing about our members of Congress, and uh, this should not be a secret to anybody in the room, they lie, (laughs) and they lie bald-facedly about what information they have access to. And it would be a wonderful thing if we could have a rule of each committee that when you walk into that SCIF and get a briefing, you sign a receipt. Um, Just an idea. I thought you were going to say require them to go get some briefings. No, 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 no. I'm I'm more than happy if Jim Sensenbrenner wants to say publicly, I never went to get briefings because I don't don't really think that should be part of my job. Um, I'm perfectly happy for him to stand up, and that's between him and his constituents. But when he goes in and gets a briefing, there should be a record of that.
4: That's aligning the the interest of the member with the to the place. All right, Laura, real quick, and then we'll open it up. Yeah,
6: I have to say, I've always been kind of mystified by this argument um, by members. Gosh, what are we supposed to do? Like, first of all, we have to go all the way down to the skiff, and then we have to like read yeah. the documents, <laughs> and then like we have to leave the documents there, and then come back. Like, what? Our hands are tied. And and you know, when you're renewing legislation, there's another option, which is no. You can vote no on the legislation, right? <laughs> There's it's kind of the obvious, you know, but I, I've always been mystified uh, by this argument. That. Like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I really have been mystified by this argument. That they can't. Right. So, so, so so I share I share your <laughs> analogy you. because because the Intel agency but with that said, two, two points. Um, Ninety-three members of Congress were prevented from reading the materials by the Intelligence Committee, Um, I will add. Ninety-three members of Congress were told they were not allowed to read the materials. That's a congressional problem. Um, And by the way, Sissy has now lifted term limits, so we have some members serving for more than 15 years on the Senate um, Select Committee on Intelligence problems of agency capture it, There are a lot of small fixes that could be done not to Im- increase oversight but improve what yeah. oversight ostensibly is already in place, amongst which are actually reading the materials, yeah. reading it before you vote on it, uh, <laughs> and it, it, having some term limits on the people it, serving on these committees to ensure more democratic it, representation. These some
4: good inventions of prudence. <laughs> uh, this gentleman <laughs> here uh, had a question, one over here as well. Good. Yeah, hi, um, my name is Todd Rosenblum, and uh, with IBM. I'm a bit of an
2: interested party former member of both the intelligence community and of the oversight committees on the Senate side. Um, life wasn't quite so easy or simple, I think, as I understand the jokes, but it's not quite, uh, I think, is being uh, mentioned right now. Um, so question, we talk about the potential for injury to U.S. persons' privacy rights, and I want to emphasize the potential for injury. I don't believe any courts have found that any government surveillance programs have actually injured any person's privacy. Yet, we live in a world, we're talking about structural reform, when there are countless cases by which we have private company, telecoms, data brokers, et cetera, repeatedly and continually violating our personal rights where injury has been documented. Um, We have, for example, terms of agreement where we all are assigned, which are not reasonable to expect people to read, that say, we forego every single right we have, and we will share your information with whomever we want to. So it's a little hard to talk about in the context of how do we do, how do we sort of look at privacy in a digital era, when only talking about what I believe is, and I agree with General Hayden, an extraordinary form of oversight that we have in a world where there are adversaries, there are competitors. And if this was about sort of weapons hardware, this would be sort of such gross negligence of nuclear disarmament we're talking about when we would declare in the Cold War to the Russians, I'll tell you what, we will pull everything we have out of Europe because we just don't sort of like it. We understand you're not going to do anything different.
4: All right. So, to the, question, the corporate
0: question. Go ahead. So, I've often thought that, that NSA could solve all its problems with an Apple-like click-through agreement. You know, when you when when you file, go to do electronic filing of your taxes, you sort of click through all your rights, and and that that would be the end of it. They'd be operating with consent. That was a joke, by the way. <laughs> um, look, there is a peculiarity in the American, and international for that matter, privacy debate, that the perception of threat and the actual threats to people's privacy, uh, as well as the perception of uh, what influences your privacy and the reality of what influences your privacy are almost unrelated. Um, And so, One thing that I think, here are three things that are just grossly overrated in our perceptions of their impact on our privacy. One is the government, one is the law, uh, and uh, one is um, sort of surveillance espionage in general. And here's some things that are really underrated, which is the sort of common law of your interactions with companies, Um, whom you give your data to willingly and what you expect and what they deliver in terms of a, a kind of iterative conversation that you have with them and you the collective public have with them over time. That has a huge impact on your lived experience of privacy every day. What NSA does has virtually none. And I, I don't say, the, there's, the, there's some give in the word virtually there, particularly <laughs> depending on who you are. And also what you consider to be privacy there is, is touching a communication and having it move through a system, a privacy violation. So you can, you can have a detailed conversation about this, but the basic common law of your interaction with companies, which is much more influenced by the FTC, by the way, than it is by any other government agency. This is just hugely more important than than the FBI or NSA. You know, different if you're courting child pornography, different if you're in touch with ISIS. Um, But, you know, this is the the, the, the gulf between the reality of privacy and the assumed reality of privacy is very, very big. And one thing we have to do is you know, break that down a little bit and, you know, give people more understanding that their relationship with CVS and true value hardware and Target and all the companies that give them little consumer benefit cards, this has a really, really big impact on your privacy relative to anything in law about what NSA or FBI is allowed to do. Laura, you want to chime in? Maybe
4: you could connect us with the comments you made earlier about the economic security and whether you worry about the databases of Facebook and Apple as being the targets of foreign intelligence.
6: So why does privacy matter, right? And it matters in three ways, right? It matters for the intrinsic value of privacy in society. It matters for the potential harms that could be done. And it matters for the structure of the country. And for the latter two categories, the specific harms, you know, to your liberty, to your property, to your life, uh, to, to th- those are harms that the government can do to you. For the structural issues, the separation of powers, if the executive branch collects all the judges' information, right? there's a structural imbalance that happens It overrides structural protections. That's a government harm. But the first, the intrinsic value of privacy, that is an aspect of privacy that the commercial sphere does affect. And it affects it in a profound way, in the same way that the government collection of all this affects the intrinsic value of privacy. This is something that Cook wrote about in Dr. Bonham's case, an Englishman's home. is his castle, why is it his castle? Because you need to have solitude. It is a human value. It's a human value to have intimate relationships with others and to keep that intimate and private and to have diversity in those intimate relationships. You can decide what level of intimacy you're going to have with others. You can debate ideas in a democracy outside others' gazes. And the, the basic founding idea or animating idea here is we change our behavior when we are under surveillance, when people are watching what we say and what we do, we change who we are and what we do. And so if we want to be the people we can become, We need solitude, we need debate, we need intimacy in our lives, and those are intrinsic values. This is what Cook wrote about, this is what Hale in his Pleas of the Crown and Hawkins wrote about, Blackstone writes about this. These animating ideas are as true whether it's the government obtaining and guarding this information or others in the commercial sphere aggregating and and crunching this information and looking at it. But right now, in a democracy, our way of getting at that is through the government access to that information.
4: I want to... I have time for one more question
1: up here. Thank you very much. My name is Andrea Glorioso. I am a counselor at the delegation of the European Union to the U.S. here in Washington, D.C. Uh, well, first of all, I would like to say I found this panel uh, extremely interesting and very instructive, and I would commend both CSIS and all the four of you, five of you who are sitting there. This is, as I said, very instructive. But having said that, there are two brief points I would like to make because there have been a couple of imprecisions said uh, during the panel which I think need correcting. And the first is what Benjamin Witta said about the recent ruling of the European Court of Justice uh, uh invalidating the EU USA Harbor agreement and Ben you mm-hmm. raised the point why didn't the court say anything about Russia or China or agreements and it didn't the court did not say anything on that for one simple reason that was not the question that the court was asked The case was about the U.S. safe harbor agreement. The court found that invalid. The European Union does not have an equivalent agreement with China and Russia for very good reasons, I would say. So I think that needs to be clarified. Uh, And the second point uh, to General Haydn. I understand understand that you were referring more to the intelligence community and to how privacy is protected in the intelligence community. I'm not competent to make a comment there, but I will say... On a general basis, uh, right now, US citizens have a right to judicial redress for privacy violations in the European Union. That is not true for European Union citizens in the US. So, at least when we speak generally about uh, privacy protection, the European Union protects the privacy rights uh, of other citizens, of non citizens of the European Union. And I say that because you pointed out that, due to the recent reforms, there has been an extension of privacy protection intelligence field for non-American citizens. I believe that is correct. But you also said that it's not true in any other part of the world. Again, I can't comment on the intelligence world, but more generally, Europe protects the privacy of non-European citizens as well.
4: So thank you. Let me redirect to the panel as, does the United States
0: have something to learn from Europe? Um, Well, I guess I'll kick that off. So, number one, just to to be clear, I did not mean to suggest that that in the Schrems' opinion, the court should have addressed a series of questions about countries not before it, or that there should... My my point was a more modest one, which was that, you know, the the very single-minded European and non-European focus on NSA surveillance at the expense of a lot of other privacy threats in the world shows up in the fact that that litigation exists in the first place, right? That, that an Austrian national's response to that uh, is to bring a litigation in Ireland that ends up in the European Court of Justice and strikes down the entire safe harbor agreement.
1: Their data I'm sorry uh, I, I appreciate your precision but, let us again be clear, that case came up not because European authorities <coughs> were against the U.S., not because we have an axe to grind with U.S. authorities. We don't. We should always keep in mind that we are the two closest allies in this world, and our economic exchanges are the strongest in this world. And in this debate, we should keep that in mind. In that specific case, you had a European consumer of an American company, which requested the American company to remove its data. Yeah, but we cannot, we have to be precise. If we want to discuss, we have to discuss on the facts.
0: Okay. So I, I just, one, one brief, uh, in response to Tom's question. I, you know, I, I think the United, the United States has a lot to learn from Europe, and it's mostly by negative example, frankly. Um, the, the European, there is a reason why Silicon Valley is in Silicon Valley and not in Europe. And uh, a lot of it has to do with differences in data rules and just uh, the degree to which uh, European rules stifle innovation, and I actually am much more comfortable with the American approach to data, which is a, 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 a more permissive, proactive approach to the use of data, combined with you know, strong enforcement from the FTC. And statutory rules regarding interaction with intelligence, intelligence community than I am to the European approach to it, and I, you know, I know Americans are supposed to be sort of shamefaced about how we're the Wild West and with respect to data, and Europe is the, living under the rule of law. That's not the way I see it.
5: All right, let, let the other members. So um, to the other half of the question, uh, it is true. That I, in, in terms of the, the the American kind of broad theological view towards permissible and impermissible surveillance. Uh, we're kind of Manichaean about the world. You know, it's a very binary thing. You are or you are not protected by the Fourth Amendment to the US Constitution, all right? And I, I freely admit my European friends have, have, have a, a broader, I would say softer, maybe fuzzier around the, around the edge, not nearly as crisp, certainly not as binary, of a broad human right with regard to privacy where ours is, ours is truly tied to, to national identity. Beyond that, though, I think think the European uh, Union has has a structural issue that since we're commenting on friends, I'll I'll share my view. Um, Questions of privacy, the question that was uh, resolved between the Irish and the Austrians and the European court. Uh, You have divided issues of sovereignty between the community and the nations. And you have given an awful lot of authority to the community to make decisions, but not about national security, National security decisions have been reserved to the nations. And so what you have in the European Union dialogue is, I, fr- I frankly think, a very stilted dialogue in which the voices for security are, are just not there. They, they, they just don't exist. Whereas in our dialogue, we, we get into a knife fight because we've got the arguments for privacy over here and the arguments for security over here inside the same institutional environment. And so what you end up with is is a very broad and, frankly, admirable European view towards this broad human right. And then, after Charlie Hebdo, you have the French Parliament passing laws that would never see the light of day in the United States when it when it comes to domestic espionage. Robin,
4: uh, both UK and European.
7: Yes, (laughs) as uh, as resident European, it should be upon (laughs) me to uh, defend the European (laughs) Union's honor, shouldn't it? Um, I, 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 I don't know. I, I tend to think that um, I, I agree with uh, with General Hayden, and even even before Charlie Abdo, really, in terms of the, some of the oversight in European, uh, in, in, on the European side of this. I mean, look at look at what you can do in France with a general warrant, and compare the oversight and the, the the I mean, I think three people, possibly a presidentially appointed panel, um, look at this and, and can approve huge amounts of things that I think wouldn't fly in America, it from the United States point of view. So um, I guess my, my, my plea would be that if, if the perception is in the US that the, that the European Union is, is, is there's, there's too too much focus on privacy over security and the rest of it would be that the US should then take the lead in making that point and trying to bring the European Union round to the, to the American point of view. I think there's been generally not, just on this issue, but a whole, whole range of issues, a lack of US leadership in recent years. Um, and I suppose it's easier for me to say that than an American to say that there should be, I think there should be more US leadership on this. And I would say that on, on surveillance, but a whole host of international issues. Well, final comment for Laura.
6: Uh, yeah, just on uh, General Hayden's point, on the Fourth Amendment not touching foreigners, uh, it does, uh, under Verdugo Urquidez. Um, so there's this case, uh, Verdugo Urquides, where Chief Justice Rehnquist says that foreigners who lack a substantial connection to the United States don't have the protection of the Fourth Amendment. And his reasoning is that the language of the Fourth Amendment, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, papers, houses, and effects against unreasonable search and seizure, he says, look, the right of the people is the people that we have in the Constitution, we the people of the United States in the beginning of the Constitution. And so the people in the Fourth Amendment refers only to the people of the United States unless you have a substantial connection. Um, And so one argument that's been circulated is, well, uh, foreigners using American ISPs have a substantial connection to the United States. Uh, This strikes me as a very bad idea uh, because then any bad guy or bad girl, let's not be gendered, right? Um, Any uh, bad girl uh, overseas can use an an American ISP and then immediately gain the protections of the Fourth Amendment in this kind of instrumentalist sense. And I think that goes directly against the country's foreign intelligence and, and interests overseas foreign intelligence interests. So so there is just a little proviso on that, that in fact, if you have a substantial connection to the United States, you'll be happy to hear Robin, um, that you would be extended protections of the Fourth Amendment. But those who lack a substantial connection fall outside the contours of the Fourth.
4: Well, thank you all for your very passionate and and expert (laughs) uh, expert thoughts about this. And thank you for coming out and all of you as well.
3: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, Thanks this week to CSIS for giving us permission to use this audio. Our music, as always, is performed by Sophia Yan, and please spread the word and promote the Lawfare Podcast via your social networks on Twitter, Facebook, email, and in any other way you can. Thanks for listening.